The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, this is the time that I'm supposed to just start to talk over your socializing and uh, um, get you, you know, if I talk loud enough, sooner or later you'll stop talking to each other, which I feel terrible about because I actually want you to talk to each other. Actually, my first uh, year here, I've been here for 22 years, my first year here on Wednesday nights I would go down and we had a Wednesday night dinner. Uh, We actually literally fed people food and people would get their trays and they'd come down to our fellowship hall and... um, I, I was like kind of an after dinner speaker or like a during dinner speaker. And they would and like half of the room wouldn't even stop eating and talking. Uh, they would just whatever. And so it was those like right around me that would listen. Um, and so we eventually did away with the meal. <laughs> We've had Wednesday night Bible study. That lasted. The, the meal didn't. Well, I'm grateful that all of you have uh, chosen to spend your time to be with us. Uh, we love these times of fellowship. Uh, we really believe that um, uh, the strengthening that comes from talking to other pastors, other people in ministry is invaluable. And to be able to share the things that you're going through in your personal life, the things that you're going through in your ministry with somebody that's not right there in your, in your church setting is, is, is huge. Um, and so we want you to do that. And after we get done, stay as long as you want um, to a point. We do have evening Bible study right in this room, the very thing I was mentioning earlier. Uh, But as we thought about different topics that would be helpful, um, this one came up on our radar screen and it continues to come up, and that is the issue of egalitarianism versus uh, complementarianism. And uh, it's uh, it's not going to go away. We need to understand that feminism and its effect on people's mindset is really here to stay, and things are actually devolving. It's getting worse and worse. Uh, I can't even imagine that we would ever get to this place where we would be so confused about gender um, and the significance of gender, what what it means to be male or female. And this is uh, something that we as a church, we have a unique opportunity as Christians to speak truth into into darkness and confusion. Uh, A society that literally has no answer whatsoever to the question of, let's say, a 12-year-old boy who asks his dad, what does it mean for me to be a a man and not a woman? Or conversely, a a 12-year-old daughter asking her mom the similar question, what does it mean for me to be a woman and not a man? I would have to say our culture just has zero answer to that, none. They're going to try to answer, what does it mean for me to be a human being? What does it mean for me to be a virtuous human being? All of those things we Christians can speak into for, for certain. But we believe that there are certain distinctives between men and women and that God intends something in those distinctives, that those distinctives between men and women do not make men superior to women or inferior to women, but there's just significant differences that God intends. Some of them are actually very hard to define. I think it's hard to define biblical masculinity and femininity. These are not easy things to define. But if the whole thing gets obliterated, we get into levels of weirdness that I I don't even know where the next step goes. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like um, it's not just a matter of bathrooms or the transgender debates, things like that. 
it's just um, the, the level of confusion about this thing is, is horrendous. And so I think for us, uh, we want to look at biblical masculine and femininity, but for me specifically, the issue has to do with leadership in the church. So I'm going to zero in on the issue of gender and authority, which is the battle that uh, we fought when I was first uh, here some years ago. And I uh, want to open that up, and it continues to be an issue. Um, quite recently, some of you have followed the, the battle on Twitter and all that with Beth Moore and some others, uh, J.D. Greer involved as well as president of the Southern Baptist Convention on the question whether women uh, can preach on a Sunday morning or teach other men, uh, especially if it's done under the auspices, let's say, of the elders as J.D. would advocate, which I disagree with. Um, but that's uh, somewhat of a hot, hot issue. And the question is, you know, how can we begin to address these things? Nine Marks, Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman had a recent discussion on this topic. And, you know, they talk about uh, different flavors or levels of complementarianism. They use an adjective like hard or harder complementarianism or softer complementarianism. So there tends to be a spectrum. I think for anyone that would call uh, himself or herself uh, to be a complementarian, um, I think we would say then that there are gender-based roles in the church and in the home that matter, and that there are things that are precluded from women uh, biblically. There's some things that we would agree that women cannot do. Um, so just to say that is cultural heresy. You understand that a gender-based restriction uh, seemed to be uh, just anathema but uh, that we would say that there are some things that we really believe Scripture precludes uh, women from doing. And then there are other things that we think Scripture does not preclude women from doing, that women are free to minister in these various ways, they're free to use their gifts. And then, so I picture this like a protractor, zero to 180, you know, so you got some sector of like, no, and some other sector of, yeah, no doubt about it, yes. And then you got that middle zone you know, um, of I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether this would be precluded from a woman, especially when you start looking at parachurch ministries, uh, seminaries, Christian colleges, various types of ministries that women might do. You know what I mean by parachurch ministries. Could be uh, any, any ministry devoted toward any kind of Christian ministry, uh, uh, caring for the poor and needy, uh, uh, immigration issues, other things like that. Can a woman lead that, uh, et cetera? And we just feel like, well, we don't really know how you would even answer that because parachurch ministries like that are not openly discussed in the Bible. So for me, I was on the search committee uh, for the, to replace David Platt as president of the International Mission Board. And early in that process, we had to address the question, could a woman be president of the IMB? And I think uh, not for scriptural reasons directly, but more indirectly, but more for practical reasons, we had to conclude the answer was no, because the president of the IMB was consistently preaching and teaching, especially on Sunday mornings all over the world, and we felt that that was precluded uh, scripturally. So we just had to work that through. So what I'd like to do is uh, like to talk about um, some of the things that the Lord led me to discern about this debate and this discussion. Uh, before I do that, uh, it's good to get a little bit of history. I've been preaching through um, 1 Corinthians. We've taken a break uh, as our church has significant construction going on, and so we're doing the book of James. But before that, I was walking through 1 Corinthians. Now, there's probably like no area of local church dysfunctionality that, that you could ever face that, you're not, that, they, that Paul didn't face in Corinth. I mean, what a messed up church. And I, I don't mean to be misunderstood here, but I praise God that they were so messed up. Um, I'm sorry for them. I'm sorry that they were so messed up. But aren't you glad that the Apostle Paul 
addressed those things for us and we can walk through it. And one of the issues was gender. Uh, the issue of head coverings comes up in 1 Corinthians 11. So I thought that was quite an adventure as we, you know, I'm a sequential expositor and it would have been very obvious to our church if I skipped the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 and got, just got onto the Lord's Supper and nothing was ever said about head coverings. Um, but as I did, I was looking at, uh, you know, doing some research on the history of feminism. Where does it all come from? You know, it's very much a part of our cultural landscape. And uh, I think it started with the women's suffrage movement in 1840 and culminated in the amendment in uh, 1920, um, I think 19th Amendment, uh, establishing the right of women to vote. And then the women's movement, so to speak, kind of went dormant for the next number of decades until in the 60s, in that era of activism and, you know, churning unrest. Uh, Betty Friedan uh, published her book, The Feminine Mystique, in which it's, you know, she argued fundamentally that there are women deeply dissatisfied with their role as a wife and mother, uh, a homemaker. And especially post-World War II, in which, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all that kind of thing, women were doing all kinds of jobs. There started to be some challenge about women's roles generally. And uh, that unfolded throughout the 60s. And then we had the horrible Roe versus Wade decision. And feminism got linked completely um, at that point to abortion rights, which was tied, in their view, to economic freedom, the ability to be free, to walk away from a sexual encounter like a man can, and to just uh, you know, establish your own personal freedom and choices, et cetera. Uh, tragedy, uh, utter tragedy. And, and there continued to be a questioning of of the validity of gender in jobs, in pay, but it didn't stop there as we've seen. It just, if, if gender doesn't matter when it comes to, to employment or pay, maybe it doesn't matter at all. And you know, sexuality would blew right through that. Gay marriage, uh, the LGBTQ uh, movement uh, on into transgender. And it's interesting, I remember hearing Al Mohler in a, um, you know, a briefing uh, thing. He was talking about traditional feminist colleges like Wellesley and some of these other places. My sisters both went to Wellesley. Um, and they're having a harder and harder time defining women's studies because they just don't know what a woman is. <laughs> and there's like so many different flavors and versions. Um, it's almost like the only person who can't matriculate at uh, Wellesley is a biological male who identifies as a biological male. That would be all of us. Um, but anybody else can matriculate as a woman or in that woman's call. You know, it's just so strange and so weird. So it's for us to speak, I think, some um, sanity and some biblical truth. But I think all of you are aware of the fact that it's a hot issue. It's, it, people get angry about it. So um, we were going to, uh, Thomas, I, I meant to ask these guys, but I'd like to ask you guys where you're at. And if I could have a couple of, of you say what kind of, when you think of gender and authority, and, and what kind of situation are you in in your church? And also along with that, why do you think people get so angry about this issue? I have my theory on it, and I'll speak to that. But why do you think people get very angry about gender questions? gender and authority questions. Okay, so identity tied to a role, I think that's incredibly important. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I think it's part of, the, it's the dark side of the American dream, which is you are what you can achieve. You have the freedom to achieve. If you can't achieve much, you aren't worth much. See what I'm saying? If you can't earn much, you're not worth much. 
And so that heads all the way out ultimately to euthanasia and all that, you know, the people just don't have much worth and value if they can't achieve much. And so basically then if you're saying you can't do this job, you're saying you're worth less than someone who can. Anywhere, anyone else on this? Why people get angry about this? Entitlement. I have a sense of, of you know, America's about freedom. I can do what I want, you know? Were you gonna say something, Greg? Yeah, I think as Jesus said, um, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. The way that people have conducted themselves when they're in a position of authority has been offensive and it's burned bridges. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I think that's, that's all true. Uh, another question that I ask you guys, um, where are you at in your own personal church, your, your ministry? I mean, what, is this a, an issue for you in your local church? Are you facing like, I guess what I'm asking is, are you in a revitalization situation like I was where feminism was assumed and we had to kind of take some ground? We had to take a hill or something like that. Or are you in a, a place where, you know, male leadership is understood and, and biblically celebrated, et cetera? So what's your setting? Yeah, we didn't, I didn't have such a clear statement on deacons having pastoral responsibility. They just said that the deacons were to aid the pastor in accomplishing, you know, ministry. So, but it, they were functioning that way. Anyone else? What, what's going on in your church? One thing I've learned in my, in my years here is just because people quietly allow you to preach something doesn't mean that they believe it or accept it. So, you know, you've, you've got people in your church that probably are drinking at the well of feminism and egalitarianism, and they don't agree with you, but they know they can't win the battle and they don't want to create trouble for themselves, and they like other things about the church, but they just don't agree with you. And so, uh, and it's, it's hard because when you get, if you do sequential exposition, you come to head coverings or you come to some other thing, First Timothy 2, etc., um, you know, are you going to teach it faithfully? Um, are you going to go ahead and, and say the truth? So fundamentally, we have to believe, and this is something I had to realize, that I was, I had my own negativity and my own hateful attitude toward this biblical doctrine, though I agreed with it and thought it was true. I didn't like it because it caused me trouble. Does that make sense? I wished it would go away. And so I was embarrassed about the teaching, and I didn't relish opportunities to give it. And the Lord convicted me really through a woman who said, thank you for teaching on this topic because I finally feel free to be a woman as God biblically has intended me to be. So there are pressures put on women and women want to be biblically faithful, but they don't seem to have any support from the pastors or whatever. And, and she thanked me and felt liberated in a biblical sense by the truth. And what the Lord, I was convicted the whole time I listened to her because I wasn't delighted to teach it. And it occurred to me that I should never be embarrassed or ashamed of anything that the Bible teaches is true. It's always good food. It's healthy and strengthening. And don't shrink back from anything, even if it causes you trouble. Frankly, even more if it does cause you trouble because it means those people need to hear it. That's what's going on. And so I was ashamed of my attitude. Now, I, I don't like run for opportunities to teach on gender questions, et cetera, but I don't shrink back either. And I don't consider the head covering passage an easy passage. It's not an easy passage. It's hard to figure it out. It's, it ends up being somewhat of a, like a test case for whether the Bible's still relevant today or whether we selectively you know, pick and choose certain aspects. And we have to walk through all that. All right, so what I'd like to do now is just walk through. This is an outline that I did a number of years ago. And uh, 
you know, the whole thing is 33 pages long. I've given you guys in this handout just a summary. None of, there's no biblical support at all in the summary. All the biblical supports in the longer document. Does that make sense? So I was just pulling out statements sim- similar to the 95 theses, you know, just precepts. Um, without any cross-references, but there are many cross-references behind them, and if you want the full document, it's available, um, either physically or electronically. But let's just walk through it and see if we can talk about it. How should we approach the question of gender and authority in the church? Um, manner and method. Um, God has ordained that speaking the truth in love builds the church to maturity. All right, speaking the truth in love, a clear biblical teaching. What that means is we're going to lay out right doctrine, but the demeanor, the way you carry yourself matters huge. I would not want to change anything I say to you men today if women were in the room. And just because I'm being recorded and it's going to be on, on some podcast, whatever, and people will hear it, I wouldn't change my tone at all. Because all I desire to do is have the same attitude toward women that Jesus did. And he delighted in women. And he dealt with them as um, people who needed to hear the gospel, like the Samaritan woman. People who had gifts and abilities and talents and intelligence and were indispensable to the work of God. And I'll make the point, he didn't elevate any of them to be apostles. So he established male leadership but he delighted and cherished, delighted in and cherished women. I want to do the same thing. You know, I have a, a godly wife who ministers to me more than I can, I can even put into words. I have three daughters and two sons. I want all five of them to be everything God wants them to be. So I'm not ashamed of, of anything that I would say to you. But the manner, the, the demeanor that you carry yourself is huge. So you should have that same demeanor when you get to teach on this, is how much you delight in in women and men, creating the image of God. All right, so speaking the truth in love builds the church to maturity, was, must therefore never give up in either one, uh, either by speaking right doctrine with harshness or by compromising the truth so as not to hurt somebody's feelings. You can't do either one. Um, now, there are debatable issues in Christian doctrine. Not everything is equally clear. Uh, this should give us humility in speaking our positions, and it should help people not to become bitter or divisive. However, such uncertainty stems from our own ignorance and hardness of heart. I actually think what I call a hierarchy of certainty of truth is a very important idea when it comes to biblical truth. Not everything taught in the Bible is equally clear. And I think we need to be certain about those things and uh, those things that are central and then move out in concentric circles from there. But just because something's debatable doesn't mean that we can't know the truth. In this and any doctrinal issue dealing with the life and faith of the church, we must look to the Bible alone for our ultimate solutions, and we must submit to its teachings no matter how difficult they may seem. We have to really believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to answer this. Is the Bible enough to tell us about gender and authority in the local church? It is. We don't need anything more. It's all right there. Secondly, God's sovereignty in the universe and the church. God actively rules over his creation for his own glory, and no one has the right to question the way he chooses to do things. This is very important. If God sets it up a certain way, that's how it's going to be. And uh, God is not shy or embarrassed about leading out. (laughs) He's going to make assertions, he's going to make commands, and he expects it to be done a certain way. God makes rules for how his people are to live, and these include the way the church is to be run. Though these may seem arbitrary, they are always loving and wise and must be obeyed gladly by his people. God and God alone decides 
who gets what spiritual gifts and who is to be called to be minister or to minister in this or that way. So it's ultimately the sovereignty of God. When I was teaching on this to our, our deacons uh, a year into my ministry here, I'll never forget this. I was illustrating it with that time that Uzzah tried to grab the ark. Remember that when he was not qualified to touch it and God struck him dead? And I'll never forget this. You know, one of the uh, just the, the central leaders of the opposition to my ministry for the first two and a half years uh, it was like he had been shocked with electricity. He was looking at the scripture and he's like, I could never believe in a God that would do something like that. You know, and I was just trying to make the point that God had the right to organize the tribes of Israel and to choose out the Levites and to choose out a subgroup, a group of the Levites and say it's only the ark's only going to be carried with acacia wood poles and all. He can do all that. He has the right to do that. And if you don't think so, I mean, just look at, just learn the lesson of Uzzah, all right? We don't have the right to grab hold of the church and do it the way we think, the way, you know, it's best to us. I think we have a, you know, a kind of an evolutionary view of spiritual truth. It's like we've evolved beyond the archaic Bible, the patriarchal Bible, things like that. It's just not true. But God has, God is sovereign and he uh, can do what he wants with his things and with his church. Third, authority and submission in God's universe. God has delegated his authority to created beings, to angels and humans at creation. He, he upholds the rights of these beings to rule their domains, uh, but he sovereignly guides their rule and calls the responsible rulers to account for their rule. So he delegates, we got archangels, ruler angels, etc. He had the, the sun to rule the day and the moon to govern the night, use that kind of language. And then he gives the earth to us, to human beings, to fill the earth, rule over it, and subdue, uh, subdue it. All right. So God has arranged human society uh, along similar patterns of authority, both in the household and society at large. Fathers are the heads of their homes. Governments have the right to rule. And rebelling against these authorities is rebelling against what God has established. So it's maybe, Kevin, the very thing you're saying. We have the tendency to just rebel. I'm just not going to do what you tell me to do. And we all have that tendency. In Matthew 8, 5, uh, 5 through 13, the Roman centurion likened the spiritual world to the Roman army in, the, in terms of its authority structure. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes. I tell that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Jesus didn't say, oh, how woefully you are misunderstanding the way things are. Everything's egalitarian up in heaven. Uh, no, not at all. There is a very clear authority structure, and he really does understand. And Jesus is similar to the Roman Empire, only Roman emperor, only greater. He doesn't need to go to this, the centurion's house. He just gives the word, and it'll be done. And uh, Jesus said, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it is. By the way, you remember the, uh, the Syrophoenician woman that came with the demon-possessed daughter? Do you realize that Jesus drove out the demon without even saying a word or going anywhere? He just said to her, because of this statement, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. When did that happen? Oh, about a second ago. <laughs> Served his evict notice, and he was out on his demonic, never mind. Um, but he was out. That kind of power, um, but that, there's that sense of hierarchy, of being a middle-level manager, a centurion, with people above him, people below him, and Jesus totally embraces that, doesn't say that's so wrong. There's a structure here, there's an order. 
beautifully structured. Fourth, authority and submission in God's church. Christ is the head of his church, ruling over it by right of creation, purchase, and a husband's love. He is the head. He's in charge. Christ communicates his authority primarily through the Holy Scriptures, inspired and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Christ delegates, delegates his authority to human under-shepherds, first the apostles, then later disciples trained by the apostles and their spiritual descendants. God established elders to be the human authorities in the local church and commanded the churches to submit gladly to the authority of the elders. All Christian leadership is truly servant leadership. Positions of authority are not given for personal pride or profit, but for the benefit of God's people. Leaders must be the slave of all. So that's servant leadership, but there's still leadership. And the right, you know, I would say authority, the way I would define it is the God-given right to command. All right, so like with me and my minor children, unlike their friends, they give, their friends give them advice. I give my kids commands. So what's the difference between advice from a friend and a command from a dad? How would you say is the is difference? Well, one of them you have to do. The other one, yeah, you take it under consideration, that kind of thing. It's interesting how sometimes my teens went ahead and took things under consideration, you know, as I would tell them what to do. Um, but fundamentally, uh, servant leadership, all God-ordained authority is meant to benefit those that it's given to. And it's, it's, you're supposed to flourish under godly authority, like we flourish under Christ's headship. He's not there to, to, to fleece the flock and to ravage us. He's there to care for us and to serve us. Uh, fifth, manhood and womanhood and creation. In the beginning, God created male and female in his own image and likeness. Males and females are equally in the image of God, equally responsible to him on judgment day, equally fit vessels of eternal glory in Christ. When I do premarital counseling, um, after doing stuff in Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about divorce and through that talks about marriage, I go then back to uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 3 to set basic foundational principles for marriage. It's interesting to me at Genesis 1, Basically, there is no gender-based distinction at all, just that the genders exist. There's, a, there's almost a, a perfect egalitarianism in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, there is a gender-based role differentiation. Both of those are important, but of the two, the first is more important. In other words, what my wife and I have in common, what's equally true about us, is more important than my headship or my leadership in the, in the marriage. Does that make sense? The fact that we're both human, the fact that we're both sinners, the fact that we're both redeemed by faith in Christ, those we share equally. It's good to keep that in mind, isn't it? So while we believe in male, male leadership, et cetera, what we hold in common with our sisters in Christ is more significant um, than what's different. But it doesn't mean that the other isn't significant. All right, God entrusted the rulership of the world to humanity, both male and female. God's plan to fill the earth with his image through the fruitfulness of the human race could only be affected as male and female work together, each fulfilling their special functions. Clearly, be fruitful and multiply could only be done as men and women fulfilled their roles. Yet, Adam was given a special place as head of the human race. Adam was created first. Eve formed from his body to be a helper suitable for him. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned through him, Romans chapter 5, not through Eve. And it's just the headship of, of Adam as the head of the human race is established. Eve sinned. Well, we didn't sin in Eve. We sinned in Adam. And so fundamentally, Adam was the only, the one ultimately uh, responsible in Eden for the final effects of sin. The headship and submission relationship of male and female was not, therefore, the result of the fall into sin, but it was part of God's wise plan for the earth. So when God says... 
it's not good for the man to be alone. We need to think of it a certain way. We should think of it as it's not good for the man to remain alone, but it was good for the man to be alone for a while. It wasn't a mistake on God's part. It wasn't an accident. It's like, oh yeah, wait, he'll need a woman. No, he did it very clearly when it says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So there's that clear establishment of male leadership in the church based on the fact that Adam was alone for a while and named all the animals, etc. So it wasn't an accident. He was establishing male leadership. So, um, you know, that's, that's a, an intentionality. Um, these functional roles continue in the New Covenant as well with the teaching that in Christ there's neither male nor female, but all are one, Galatians 3.28, does not remove all gender distinctions. Unity in Christ is not the same as equality of roles. So we are one, but we have different roles, just like the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are perfectly one, but they have different roles. I mean, only one uh, was incarnate by the Virgin Mary and died on the cross. Uh, etc. They're just different roles given to the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet we believe complete equality. God's plan for the family, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2, Colossians 3, God establishes the consistent pattern of the headship of the husband over the wife and the wife's glad submission to her husband. The analogy, husband is to wife, uh, what Christ is to the church, is never reversed. Uh, the, the, the word submission, it's, it's amazing. In Ephesians 5, 21, People zero in on that and says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and they teach a strange doctrine called mutual submission. But the thing is, um, submission means um, obedience, I guess would be a simpler, a simpler term, to obey God-ordained authority. That's what the word submit means. Uh, mutual obedience doesn't make much sense. I think our teens would love that. It's like, on Monday you can be in charge, on Tuesday I'll be in charge, you know, Wednesday we'll kind of flip for it, you know, that kind of thing. Look, you know... Mutual o obedience doesn't make any sense. And that's really what hupotasso means. It really means yielding to God-ordained authority, to that right to command. And it's always one direction. But again, with the understanding of servant leadership. In Titus uh, 2 and 1 Timothy 5, the role of women focuses on the management of the home and the training of children. This does not mean women can't work outside the home or any of that. I'm not getting into all that. But there is definitely a focus on the raising of children and the creating of an orderly and godly home. All right, women in the Bible and in the ministry of Jesus. While there are many examples of godly women in the Old Testament, there are extremely few of godly female leaders. I would say only one. 66 books of the Bible, there's only one godly woman who is given by God authority over men in the entire Bible. And if there's ever an example of what, what do you call the, uh, the exception that proves the rule, this would be a prime example. Deborah pops up in the weirdest book in the Bible, one of the weirdest books in the Bible. All right. Why do I say that? Because Judges is just, it's just whacked. The stuff that happens in Judges, I mean, even the, the last section following the Levite and his concubine and what a mess. And they're not any different, it seems, than Sodom and Gomorrah by the, by the end of it. It's like in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's not a great place to find the only godly woman leader of men in the entire Bible. It seems to be making a point by that. Other than that, what, what names would you cite? 
any of the other godly women really are just functioning generally within the roles that we've been discussing here, like Queen Esther in submission to her husband, etc. Or Mary, other God, there are a lot of godly women doing that, but not leaders over men. You don't see that kind of thing. So I think that's significant. In the New Testament, um, there are likewise few women who are cited as godly leaders. Priscilla, who with her husband Aquila, led Apollos to a more mature faith in Christ. It's strange the things that people say, like the laborers are few divided in two. I heard that one before. It's like, that's just bogus. All right. We are all given evangelistic responsibilities. No one is saying a woman can't share the gospel with a man. Um, we're not saying that at all. And in this case, it seems that Apollos just lacks some significant facts about the gospel. Uh, Phoebe, who is uh, perhaps a deaconess, uh, Priscilla, oh, we just mentioned Lydia, at whose house Paul stayed in Philippi. However, none of these women are spoken of as authoritative spiritual leaders in a local church, whereas there are a large number of men who are cited as church leaders. And the New Testament, therefore, is just as silent as the Old Testament when it comes to examples of women leading men. Now, Jesus Christ, the most courageous, countercultural man in history, of whom it was truly said that he was not intimidated by men. He paid no attention to who they, they were. He was not worried about cultural norms. He challenged the norms on Sabbath observance whenever he wanted to um, because he was Lord of the Sabbath, he said. And uh, why do I say all this about Jesus? Because Jesus was not buckling to the patriarchal pressures of his age by not elevating women to be apostles. He elevated women exactly to where he wanted them to be. He wanted them to be disciples, sitting at his feet, learning like, like Mary did when Martha was bustling around making 17 dishes for the most elaborate lunch they'd ever had. You know? And then she said, don't you care that my sisters left all this work for me to do? Remember that? And he said, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. I don't care that we eat all these dishes. This is a unique opportunity. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be better portion. It will not be taken from her. And that's the portion of drinking in God's word. So he wanted that. The Samaritan woman at the well, he was zeroing on her, on her soul. He wanted her. And he revealed his, his messiahship more clearly to her than anyone else up to that point. It's incredible. I who speak to you am he. So he elevated He received financial support from women in Luke chapter 8. Um, elevated them. All of these things. Uh, he allowed women to be the first witnesses of his resurrection. Um, go and tell my brothers, uh, etc. All of these things. However, he did not put them in period, uh, positions of spiritual leadership over men, but the 12 apostles were all men. All right, now key New, New Testament passages. <clears throat> um, I think Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman were, they were talking about the recent kerfuffle of, over whether women can preach under the leadership of the, uh, uh, the elders. First of all, I don't know even what that means practically. Like, do you have a banner over her head while she's preaching saying, the authority of the elders, you know, so she's under the banner. Um, if an outsider should come in, 1 Corinthians 14 and see, they're just going to think she's the pastor of the church. It doesn't, it, there's all kinds of practical problems. But I remember, I think it was Jonathan Lehman said that Lig Duncan, when talking about this, said if there were such a clear vo verse on believer baptism. I would have been, been a Baptist a long time ago. 1 Timothy 2 is as clear as it gets. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
uh, you look at that and, and you're like, first of all, an intermediate position on, on complementarianism, which is I do not permit a woman to be an elder, but she can preach and teach, doesn't make any sense to me. Now, some of you may disagree, and we can discuss that in a minute. But if you look at the Greek, there, first of all, there's something being forbidden. All right? We should not try to divide Paul from Jesus or Paul from God. That violates our, our doctrine of Scripture. If Paul doesn't permit something, we should understand that God doesn't permit something. So it has nothing to do with Paul being a rabbinic Jew or any of that stuff that you hear. All right, so God does not, well, what doesn't he permit? Is it one thing or two? And there are two infinitives, and they're separated in the Greek sen sentence, something like this. To teach, I do not permit, neither to have authority over a man, she, the woman, she must be silent. So that's kind of jumbled up in, the, in um, English, but there's the Greek order. So there are two different infinitives, and they're joined by this Greek word, ude, which means and not or neither. So there's two things being forbidden. So what I would want to say is to anybody, J.D. Greer or anybody else, if you do not believe that a woman can be an elder, on what basis are you making such a prohibition? I mean, you're flying directly in the face of feminism, doing so with a certain measure of conviction. What do you have under your feet? And if you say, well, I have 1 Timothy 2.12, <laughs> I'm saying, have we finished the work there, or is there yet more that's being prohibited? The ude, I think, settles it, that there are two things being prohibited, not just one. And so he does not want women to teach. Now, then you have to figure out what does that mean for a woman to teach, and you have to walk through that and try to understand that. Um, but to me, this is um, the clearest, most significant passage on this. 1 Timothy 3 immediately follows it with requirements for elders. So I think it's, if you just remove the chapter divisions and the verse division, you just, we're, we're running right into church leadership. So it's very clear, in my opinion, that 1 Timothy 2 goes right on into 1 Timothy 3 to pro prohibit women from being elders and having authority in the church. Now, the deacon question in 1 Timothy 3 is a little different. Um, we have women deacons in our church. They just don't teach or have authority over, over men. Other conservative churches do not permit women to be deacons on the basis of husband and one wife. But I've asked the question exegetically in 1 Timothy 3.11, why are there prohibitions or, or restrictions concerning the uh, wife of um, deacons but not the wives of elders? And so that, that word, which could be translated woman or wife, is either talking about women deacons or it's talking about wives of who. And if it's just wives of deacons, because you're right in the middle of the deacon section, then why isn't there anything said about wives of elders? It's, it's an argument from silence, I know, but to me it seemed indications that Paul was talking about women deacons, just as long as they don't teach or have authority over men. There is a legitimate disagreement uh, in conservative churches on that. 1 Corinthians 11 discusses women wearing head coverings. If you think um, that that's something you'd like to hear what I teach on, you can go to the Two Journeys. Are those sermons up there in Two Journeys? Yeah. So I took a crack at it. Um, you can, you can uh, listen and tell me what you think. I think what you've got there is a timeless transcultural principle of male leadership in the local church, um, <clears throat> but with a, a time-bound cultural um, expression. Um, 
you know, that's, that's, so the head covering is not something that's done in all the churches uh, necessarily, but the, um, but the male leadership is, all right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, again, limits women in public worship, where that's the portion where it does, uh, it has women being silent in the churches. I think the context there has to do with the evaluation of prophecy, but there's different uh, debates on that, okay? Uh, so, finally, encouragement to women uh, to minister as God directs. Women should regard their own ministries as in- indispensable to the healthy growth of the church, and men should see it the same way as well. No woman should consider herself of any lower value because she is restricted from teaching or having authority over man. Any more than a man who's not gifted or called to be an elder should consider himself lower or of less significance than an elder in the church. That's just not true. Uh, every member of the body of Christ is equally important, loved, redeemed, and able to be fruitful through the Holy Spirit with his or her spiritual gifts. You don't have to be an elder to be fruitful in gift and, and, and be able to minister. Okay? All Christian women who use their gifts to build up the church will receive gracious and just rewards from God on Judgment Day and will be re- rewarded uh, by exactly the same criteria as men. Faithfulness, obedience, love, fruitfulness, etc. Fundamentally, what did your master want you to do and did you do it? And if you did, then he'll reward you. It really just comes down to that. And has he expressed his will to us? He has. And so we should be faithful and wait for our rewards on Judgment Day. So that's just a quick overview of the things that I teach in this longer document. Uh, I'm going to uh, stop now. And Andy, why don't you come up and give us some of the case study stuff, and then we can go, st- go to some Q&A. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.